You should have an outline. We have some in the back. Anyone need an outline? I see, I see that hand. Well, we have we have a big we have a big hold up in the back. Let's read in Matthew chapter four and verses one through eleven. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the, I'm getting a little echo here. Oh, it bothers you, it'll be okay. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him into a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. I'd like to read also a verse in Acts 27. Uh, this particular passage in Acts is a very famous one. It's the great shipwreck scene. Acts chapter 27, verse 17. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Cirrus. And they let down, having a little trouble, uh, a little light. Um, Okay, thanks. We love light in here. 
Thank you. In the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way they let themselves be driven along. It's all vanity. I just don't want to wear my glasses. <laughs> now turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Our subject today is tempted yet sinless, or our great high priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In one of his books, F.W. Borum pictures two men sitting in a meeting listening to a sermon. One of the men is Thomas. He loves doctrine. He sits there with a pad and a pen. The other is Jamie. And as soon as the scripture is read, he closes his Bible and begins to thumb through the hymn book. And if the preacher suddenly begins to make a practical application, especially with a warm emotional story, Jamie immediately perks up and listens. Talk about the book of James with its practical lesson, be doers of the word and not merely hearers. And Thomas tunes you out and puts down his pen. Talk about theology, doctrine, the great fundamentals of the faith, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement. Jamie is actually kind of bored. It's all too dogmatic, too intellectual. And uh, as you know, both of these men have a problem. Uh, let me bring it home uh, in a little way. I remember years and years ago, I was working with a local assembly in McKinney, Texas, and there were fans of James Dobson in the assembly, and so we had a series of James Dobson films on the family. Now, they were in no way profound as far as doctrine, uh, no deep exposition, but they were actually very perceptive uh, talks based, uh, they were almost like modern uh, proverbs. Uh, all of the Jamies were there, and we laughed and we cried, and surely a great work of God was felt. Resolutions were made, promises made. Jamie felt this was the deepest stuff he had ever heard. There was a problem, however, months later, um, his life was kind of in shambles and his home in disarray. And of course, Thomas never came uh, to the study. What's the point? 
Well, my point is this. Doctrine and life go together. Right doctrine is the basis of right action. Uh, actually, to practice Dr. Dobson's principles in the right way would require that you be a stable uh, Christian. The book of Hebrews is a case in point. In fact, today's passage is a case in point. It deals with the priesthood and the temptation and the sinlessness of Jesus. Thomas has his pen and pad ready. This will certainly be heavy stuff. Jamie's in a half doze, and if you're Jamie, wake up. Uh, Jamie knows that, of course, if he stays around long enough, they'll get to chapter 11 with its wonderful biographical lessons and chapter 13 where the author talks about a marriage and money and so on, and he'll wake up. But really, they're, they're both wrong in their attitude and they're separating one from the other. Uh, let me go further. If you want to retain the benefit of practical books and films. I was thinking of the Dobson series that I watched some 30 years ago. And benefit from counseling sessions, devotional talks. If this is your desire, you've got to make these verses a reality in your life. I think I can say with absolute authority that all the films, lectures, counseling sessions, devotional talks will not help you in the long run unless the profound truth, the doctrine of the priesthood of Jesus Christ is a reality in your life. This is really a central thing in the Christian life. So let's turn to our passage today. There are five things the writer has to say in verses 14 to 16. He talks about the dignity of our high priest his empathy, his sinlessness, his accessibility, and his sufficiency. So first of all, the dignity of our high priest. And uh, let's look at these four elements. First of all, his title. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, in this secular age, the word priest has a strange ring to it. But as F.B. Meyer wrote a long time ago, deep down in the heart of man, there is a strong and instinctive demand for a priest. Around the world, we find the wigwam, the pagoda, the Parthenon, the obelisk, the Gothic minster, minster, uh, minster cathedral, and all of, these, all of these religious places have their priests. And some of them are very pagan and false, but they all reflect a need in man, which the Bible says is proper. It's the need for a priest. Job says this, if only there were someone to arbitrate between me 
That is a mediator between God and man. The word mediator is used commonly in the book of Hebrews. It means a middleman. It was used in business contexts. But Jesus is the mediator. He's God and man. And Job says, if only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both. And in Old Testament times, in the history of Israel, one man was set apart to be the high priest. He was Aaron. And Aaron and his successors were called the great priest. The term great high priest is never used in the Old Testament. And this marks Jesus out as someone who is greater than the Aaronic high priest. And then his abode, who has passed through the heavens. Uh, his greatness is seen in this particular expression. In Old Testament times, and uh, I think many of you have seen the worship apparatus of the Old Testament, the tabernacle. It had a large uh, courtyard. And then uh, in the courtyard was the tabernacle proper, which was made up of two rooms, the holy place where the priests uh, function daily, and then the Holy of Holies, uh, which was symbolically, according to Psalm 99, the throne room of God, where the mercy seat was. And Aaron would go into the Holy of Holies, but he would only go in once a year. Jewish tradition says that there are seven heavens. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks of being caught up to the third heaven. Well, the writer of Hebrews is probably not even contemplating those ideas. Uh, he's speaking here of our Lord's ascending into heaven. He means more than an astronaut's trip through space. It speaks of Jesus' ascendance to a place of transcendence. He is beyond the bounds of space and time. He's exalted above the heavens. In chapter 8 it says he's at the right hand of God in the heavens. So think back to the Old Testament. Once a year Aaron could go into the Holy of Holies with blood and sprinkle blood as it were on the mercy seat. This, this priest is greater He's always in the presence of Almighty God. The New Testament says nothing, by the way, of a sanctuary or priestly ceremonies here on earth in this age. The idea of a clergy class who are priests is really actually a very Jewish idea. It's not, it's not a uh, New Testament idea. In any case, Alexander White said this, a friend of any kind and to any extent or degree is something to have in this cold and lonely world. But to have a friend who has the ear of God and who fills God's ear from time to time with our name and our case, oh, where shall I find such a friend? Well, you have such a friend. And he's at the right hand of God, interceding for us.
Know with me now his names, the names of this priest. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, Vincent Taylor says, of all names, none is more precious in Christian ears than the name Jesus. Sometimes I'll hear someone speak about Jesus in eternity past. Well, that's kind of inaccurate. God the Son is eternal, but it's only when he was born into this world that he was given the name Jesus. Jesus is his human name. It's the Greek form of the, the Old Testament word, Joshua. Uh, this same Jesus who was born at Bethlehem and died at Calvary is now in heaven. We don't let this grip us as we should. The one who walked in sandals on the paths of Palestine is now crowned with glory and honor. There used to be a, an Old Testament teacher at the University of Edinburgh, John Duncan, and he was uh, so well-versed in the Bible they called him Rabbi Duncan. Rabbi Duncan said, the dust of earth is on the throne of the majesty on high. Imagine, there is a human being today in a glorified body, and he is in heaven. And of course, that assumes that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. New Testament knows nothing of a phantom resurrection. The name Son of God is and we will not go there today, but it's kind of a nuanced name. It has nuance, different nuances and different passages in the New Testament. But here it looks at his deity. In chapter 1, we learn that the Son created the world. He will inherit the world. He providentially guides history. And it is that one, the Son of God, who is our priest. These two names are very significant. Jesus speaks of his humanity. It assures us of his sympathy. The Son of God speaks of his deity. It assures us of his power to help us. And then his doctrine. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, the word confession here could mean, could speak of our uh, daily witness to others on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here it speaks of the doctrines we hold. We would almost uh, use the term creed. Uh, in the early church, it is believed that as a person was baptized, having uh, trusted Christ, they would often recite some basic doctrines before they were baptized much like we might in a creed today in a church. Well, we're brethren, so maybe we wouldn't, but uh, many do. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his Son, who came down for our salvation, and so on. Uh, some of the readers were at a fork in the road, Either they were going to go back to Judaism and reject Christ, or they were going to fully trust in Jesus Christ. And so, this is a, this is a call 
to perseverance in the faith. Hold fast, hold fast. This was often used in nautical circles, that is a sailor's term, and it was used with the sense to steer toward port or to land at. And if you're not saved, if you're not a Christian, well, the lesson here is steer for port, make for Jesus Christ. But he is, he's assuming that most of these people are saved, they profess to be saved, and so he's saying, make sure, check your lines. Are you really tied up here? The way you're acting in this assembly, your, your dullness, you need to, you need to make your, you need to make your profession Sure. I have a page taped into my notes here. We think of the words of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. Not a very nice diet. When he was asked to recant his teaching, Luther said this, I cannot and will not recount anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. He had a deep conviction concerning the Lordship of Christ. He was holding, holding fast to his confession. We run, a, a, run ahead four centuries. We think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian, seminary professor, participant in the resistance movement, and now at the end of his days he is imprisoned. The time is running out. An interrogator from Berlin named Huppenkotten arrives with orders for Bonhoeffer's trial and execution. So the Sunday before he died, he was entreated by his fellow prisoners, among whom were Lutherans and Roman Catholics and one communist from Russia. They wanted him to hold a worship service. And so the day before he died, he gave an exposition. I love this. His exposition was on the words, by his wounds we are healed. And he then read, from 1 Peter, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth in a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The last recorded words we have of Bonhoeffer, sent to the outside, are these. The key to everything is the in him. All that we may rightly expect from God and ask him for is to be found in Jesus Christ. The God of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with, with God as we imagine him could do and ought to do. If we are to learn what God promises and what he fulfills, we must persevere. Now listen to this. In quiet meditation on the life sayings, deeds, sufferings, and death of Jesus. It is certain that we may always live close to God and in the light of his presence, and that such living is an entirely new life for us, 
that nothing is then impossible for us because all things are possible with God, that no earthly power can touch us without his will, and that danger and distress can only drive us closer to him. The next morning, between five and six, he was stripped naked beneath the scaffold. He knelt to pray one last time before he was hanged. But those are great inspirational people who held fast, held fast. You notice in this verse, there's a wonderful warm touch in verse 14. It says, we have a great high priest. He doesn't say, there is a great high priest. We have a great high priest. This is no abstract theologian that is writing here. John Henry Jowett said this, merely to hug a creed and to take no rest is no more than no more faith than to hug a timetable is to take a trip. We need the we have, I have, I have a high priest. The empathy, the empathy of our high priest. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He reminds us of the true humanity of the Lord. The Lord Jesus had weaknesses. The term speaks of human frailty, hunger, thirst, weariness, disappointment, shrinking from pain, loneliness. True humanity. True humanity. Same weaknesses that we have. And because of this, he's able to sympathize. He's touched, the King James Version says, with the feelings of our infirmities. But he empathizes with us. Music lovers tell me something very interesting about the violin. They say you place two violins in a room and they're both uh, well-tuned and you pluck a string on one of the violins, the corresponding string on the other violin will begin to vibrate too. It, it, they say it empathizes. Well, Jesus empathizes with us. He feels for us. He puts himself uh, in our place. Stuart Hutchinson tells a story of a boy who had lost his, lost his right hand in an accident. He, had, he didn't lose his right hand. He's okay. But he was so humiliated by this, he did not want to be seen. And his father brought him to see a pastor, and the boy rebelled against the idea, but the father followed his own counsel and brought him to the minister, and when the minister entered the house, the boy looked and the minister didn't have a right hand. And there was an immediate bond of sympathy between the two. And the man could honestly say to the boy, I know how that feels. I know how that feels. He has been tempted. The word tempted can be a neutral word. 
It means testing. It implies neither virtue nor sinfulness. The writer's thinking of Jesus' encounter with Satan in the wilderness. The temptation to draw back in Gethsemane. The insults hurled at him as he hung on the cross. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Think of the encounters with Satan. Turn these stones to bread. Our Lord was fasting. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. He was hungry. Hunger was, is a perfectly natural and innocent thing. And Jesus felt the tug, the natural instinct of tasting bread. And like us, Jesus had to find God's will. But unlike us, when he found it, he did it. He resisted the temptation to put self-concern above God's will. Jump down from the temple. Temptation of popular acclaim. Or, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just avoid the cross. The Lord has been tempted. These were real temptations. And so he knows temptations, and they give him empathy. But he was sinless. He was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Jesus' sympathy is not an understanding that condones everything. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, not with our sin. As someone has put it, his weakness is not a weakening. He was without sin. This certainly means that he never sinned. In verse 14, he's called the Son of God. That would suggest that he could not sin. Theologians call this impeccability. If this is true, then how could he be tempted? And that, of course, is, uh, that, of course, is a very, very deep problem. And we're not going to be able to solve it today. But let me just make a few, a few observations for Thomas, the theologian. First, Jesus Christ is a divine person. Eternally, he is God the Son. Someone said, well, he'd say, well, a genuine human nature is both temptable and peckable, able to sin. Well, that's true if all it if that's all that Jesus was. People fail to realize that the seat of his personality is in his deity. Jesus Christ in history took a human nature as an additional nature. He did not take a second person to himself. He's one person, a divine person, that divine person took to himself an additional nature, a human nature. There's only one person, but there are two natures. Furthermore, Jesus is as mighty to overcome Satan and sin as is his mightiest nature. And further, the divine nature may leave the human nature alone when no sin or guilt is involved. Jesus is tempted as a man. And apparently, the divine nature does not get involved in this struggle. Uh, listen to what it says. 
he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And then he takes his stand as a man. He says to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone. And then at the end of the ordeal, minister, uh, angels come and minister to him. God does not need the comfort of angels, but angels came and ministered to Jesus. Jesus met Satan as you and I must. He was led by the Spirit, and he used the Scriptures. He stood firm in the Word. Some say if he couldn't have sinned, the temptation loses its force. Uh, would you have liked him to sin? Sin doesn't make him more sympathetic. It hardens us. The key term in this verse is weaknesses, weaknesses, infirmities. I heard Larry Richards use an illustration like this. Suppose I need to diet. Well, that we don't even need to suppose. But suppose I need to diet. If I came up to camp every day and ate the way I ate eat this week, I would uh, probably die. <laughs> suppose I need to diet. And so I go on a six-week diet. Breakfast, I get up in the morning, I have V8 cornflakes with a dribble of skim milk. For lunch... Celery, cottage cheese, skimmed milk. Dinner, veal, cottage cheese. I am starving. Day two. Breakfast, tomato juice, cornflakes with a dribble of skim milk. Lunch, celery, cottage cheese, and I eat the paper bag for dessert. <laughs> and dinner, I come home and see a dish of, of leftover Halloween candy, Snickers, Three Musketeers, a Milky Ways. I have a little of this and a little of that. I give up completely. Six weeks later, I meet a friend. He was on the same diet. He's slim. He's trim. He's all decked out with a new jacket. I said, how did you do this? He said, I dieted for six weeks. I say, I couldn't stand it. I said, I was on that thing for a day and a half. I was dying. Well, he has every right to say, you have no idea how hard it is. I was on it for six weeks and didn't give in. Jesus didn't give in. Westcott says, sympathy with with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation of sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. Let me read you this from uh, a book I read many years ago. Maybe you read this book too, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. I think he was 
jabbing at the French at that point. You find out the strength of the German army not by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like uh, an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Interesting description of the Lord Jesus Christ. The accessibility of our priest. The accessibility of our priest, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Confidence. The word confidence there is a Greek word meaning freedom of speech. The word boldness in the King James is probably a little better. What if I don't feel confident to come to the Lord? Well, it's not used subjectively here. It doesn't have to do with feeling so much. It's, a, it's actually an objective privilege he's talking about. You have, you have the right of access. That's what he's really saying. If you are saved, you have full authority to come right into God's presence. Freedom of speech. Come in and tell him everything that's on your heart. In Psalm 91.1, God's throne is said to be the mercy seat in the tabernacle. That throne today is, is heaven. I'm running out of time. But let me say some more. This is a very important doctrine. There are those today who deny Jesus' humanity and temptation. And in church history, heresies like this have always had results, bad results. For example, a denial of the true humanity of Christ, his accessibility, led to worship of and prayer to the saints. People worship the saints, pray to the saints, invoke the saints, invoke Mary, because Jesus appears unapproachable. A prayer to Mary, she can withhold the avenging arm of her son. Years ago, I was training in Massachusetts to be a high school uh, history teacher. And during my practice teaching, my master teacher was a very colorful man named Fred White. Fred was a manly man, an able teacher. He was a Roman Catholic. And he know, knew that I'd gone to a theological school, which was evangelical and Protestant, so we would have some friendly discussions about doctrine, and one involved prayer to Mary. Elite Catholics will say they don't pray to Mary, they invoke Mary, but he spoke of praying to Mary, and his argument was this, look, Mary is human. Mary is understanding. 
Jesus will listen to his mother. <laughs> that, was, that was the argument. Jesus will listen to his mother. Talk to Mary and you'll gain his ear. He's, he's, he's unapproachable except for that. The author of Hebrews argues that Jesus is human and understanding and that the Father will listen to him. So we are to pray through Christ, our mediator. I was mentioning talking to some of you uh, this week about the book A Severe Mercy by Sheldon Van Oken. Sheldon Van Oken and his wife, Davy, her name was Jean Davis, they were a young couple in Oxford and they were converted to faith and C.S. Lewis was their mentor. And they asked C.S. Lewis about prayer and should they enlist the help of the Blessed Virgin. And Lewis didn't like to take sides in theological debates between the high church and the low church and so forth, but he did say this, if one's time for prayer was limited, the time one took for asking Mary's help was time one might be using for going directly to the Lord. And that was very, very, very uh, good counsel. At this point, I'm not even sure where I'm at in my outline. The sufficiency of our high priest so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, mercy. That's pardon for past failures. Grace looks at assistance in the present and in the future. Notice the word we have here. We may find grace to help. Now you may be wondering why I read Acts chapter 27. That's the account of the terrible sea storm and the ship. You remember Paul is on the ship and the ship is literally coming apart. And so to keep it from coming apart, they put supporting cables underneath, underneath the ship uh, to protect it. Well, that word, supporting cables, is, literally means helps. They threw helps under the uh, ship. And it's the exact word, the same, very same word that's used here in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. And I like to apply it this way. When you feel like you're coming apart, call on him for help. That's the idea, you see. We have various forms of prayer. Someone spoke of the track meet approach of prayer where you cover everything real quickly, confess, be perfect, adore, and just get it out of the way. Just one more thing you've got to do in the morning or the business deal approach. Listen, Lord, I'll, I'll even make it 60-40 in your favor if you do it this way for me. Or the spiritual pride approach. I get up every morning at 4 to do my praying. And what is the approach of our author? We come to the Lord because he knows us. If there's anything about the spiritual life the New Testament teaches, it's that the Lord wants this intimacy with his people. His intimacy. 
He greets us. He wraps us in his arms. He forgives the past. He strengthens us for the future. We come as often as we have need. That's how we pray. We come as often as we have need. How often do we have need? All the time. Pray without ceasing. We face needs all the time. And we have an accessible, empathetic, able high priest to help us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, for the Lord Jesus Christ, we give you our thanks. We thank you, Lord, for the teaching of Scripture that Christ is our great prophet, our great priest. One day he will reign on this earth as our king. We think especially in these lessons of his priesthood, his accessibility, the freedom of access we have to him, the empathy, the understanding. Lord, help us not to view God as someone from whom we must run. Help us to see him as someone to whom we must run in time of need. We pray in his name. Amen.